one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This year so far in the UK, the government has issued 275 billion pounds in new debt, issuing bonds to cover the cost of furloughed workers and all the other support that's been needed to get the economy back on track. And come August, they're probably going to issue even more debt. Already the debt accrued totaled more than £2.4 trillion, more than the GDP of the country in one year. It's the first time that has happened for 57 years. So how do you pay for it? The government issues bonds, people buy the bonds, or if there's not enough people to buy the bonds, then the Bank of England buys them up. At some point, the expectation is that the central bank will then want to sell them back on the open market. But what if they don't bother? Then there's absolutely no reason why the government has to pay back the debt to pay out the cost of those bonds issued. You could just count it as extra money added to the circulation, in effect created by the central bank. So how will that work out? Well, we'll look at that today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. So what is wrong with the idea that the central bank just issues money to cover government debt and not expect the government to pay it back? Well, convention has it that if you expand the money supply too much, which is in effect what the central bank is doing by uh, issuing that money, uh, you get runaway inflation because we all see the value of our dollar or our pound or our krona or our ruble or Eritrean Nafka, it doesn't matter where you are, uh, we all see it as being worth a little bit less if there's so much more of it around. But, you know, guess what? The coronavirus has been a, a, a stimulus to create a massive increase in the supply of money in the UK, where we've, uh, and it's the same everywhere else, but in the UK we've gone from a little over £2.4 trillion in circulation in January up to about £2.65 trillion by April, and it's still going up. That's a 10% increase in the M2 money supply. Most of that is, of course, going to be coming from central banks issuing more money to buy those government bonds to cover this increase in government debt. So there's a has to be a, a realisation of that's actually what's really working. And actually, it's, it's different from in normal times when we don't have a virus. Uh, the biggest issuer of debt is uh, commercial banks issuing it for home loans, but we're not taking out home loans at the moment. Most of the money is being created to cover these this excess spending by, by the government. So why don't we just live with it? Yeah, and this is advantageous in one sense in terms of clarifying what actually happens, whether anybody will ever take notice of it is another story. But uh, non-Orthodox economists uh, from Basil Moore forward have been saying that uh, the government can finance itself Internally, this is the whole message of modern monetary theory, the, the important core message, uh, that the government can create as much money as it needs, fundamentally by the Treasury selling to the central bank. However, uh, laws have been passed over the last century saying that can't be done. The Treasury must, in fact, sell its bonds to the financial sector. Uh, but, mm. of course, then the central bank, uh, to maintain the target interest rate it sets, 
has always been involved in what are called open market operations, buying and selling bonds off the financial yeah. sector. So it's a roundabout route. Now, because of the coronavirus, bang, that law went out the window. And the story is if the Treasury wants to create, for example, £100 billion worth of money to inject directly into the economy through people's bank accounts, it creates £100 billion uh, nominal value of bonds, sell those to the central bank. Central bank says, OK, we work those in our asset side. Here's £100 billion we're putting into your our liability side, the account of the Treasury, and the Treasury can then put that directly into people's bank accounts through um, all the all the financial supports we've seen through the coronavirus. So it's a direct injection, direct creation of money. Right. Um, but it's yeah. still sitting on the balance sheet, isn't it, at the central bank? Mm. The expectation is that they will wind that, that, that balance sheet back down again at some point. Although, interestingly, uh, since 2008, it seems like they... <laughs> They never do. And in the United States, when they tried to do that, when they tried to wind back QE, for example, they realized they made a mistake. And even before uh, we got into the coronavirus, they would, they, you know, they were starting to extend their money supply and issuing, issuing more QE. Yeah, well, it's, it's, this is one of the ironies of, of reading the mainstream about this because, um, and it, it may even be that the new, who's, who's the new governor of the, of the Central Bank of England, or the, tre- the uh, Andrew Bailey, isn't it? Andrew Bailey. It looked like he's read too many textbooks as well from what he had to say in Bloomberg recently. They believe that banks lend out reserves, and mm. quite literally, that when the bank makes a loan, the reserves must go down. Now, um, firstly, that that is simply not possible unless the money is taken out in cash, and this is the um, the, the weird thing about reading the mainstream. This because they don't pay sufficient attention to how banks actually operate because in the models banks don't matter and therefore they haven't developed decent models of banks to begin with. But their mental picture is, oh, well, they've got this bucket of money called reserves and they take money out of that and they give it to you as the public as loans and therefore when the bank lends, their reserves go down. Garbage. Uh, Mm. The only way the reserves go down is if they actually get taken out of the banking sector. And the one that we get taken out of the banking sector is if people take take out in the form of cash. And yeah. uh, you know, rather than rather than uh, leaving, you know, if you if you you and I make a payment between each other, it goes from my deposit account to your deposit account. The reserves of my bank goes down. The reserves of your bank goes up by precisely as much, and there's no change. And then when they lend, they don't lend out of reserves. They create a new asset called a loan on the asset side of the ledger. They whack extra exactly the same amount of money uh, in the liability side of the deposit account. The reserves are unaffected. So this, yeah, it's it's it's, it's crazy to watch this. Crazy. Stuff. Well, Andrew Bailey actually should read. I mean, it's only fourteen pages. I'm sure he's got the time. He should read "Money Creation in the Modern Economy" by uh, Michael McClay, uh, Amar Rydia, and Dryland Thomas. Uh, it's uh, an interesting paper put out by oh the Bank of England. Perhaps he should have read that before he started the job. This is what it pretty me, much yeah. explains it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I was talking with a couple of my colleagues on on Twitter and on this whole front, and you know, you you get somebody running the Bank of England who doesn't understand what the Bank of England's research centre has worked out for themselves, and yeah, this is because yeah. they got appointed to the uh, you know, Monetary Policy Committee or whatever they they call the you know I, th- I think the FOMC is the, the is the initials yeah. of the Fed Reserves one. They get appointed because of you know past service to the financial sector, not because they. They're up with the latest research from their own bank staff. So they start putting forward policies that have got diametrically opposed to the knowledge 
their own bank staff have of how the bank the money the monetary system so the, the danger about creating money the the argument that's often given like where we are now where we mm. are expanding the money supply quite significantly well 10 percent is quite significant it's more uh, in other parts of the world like in australia for example i'll come back to that because i wonder if you've got a low balance sheet then the percentage increase is going to be greater and i wonder whether that uh, shocks the economy in any way but the expectation is isn't it if you expand the money supply too much you get inflation, and that's when people start bringing up Zimbabwe in mm. 2008 or whenever it was, and Germany with its uh, printing money to pay their war reparations uh, after the war. But is there? I mean, I mean, obviously there's a concern. If you do too much, you are going you are going to get in, in inflation. And in fact, Zimbabwe is back at it, of course, because their money supply last year increased threefold, which is a bit different to the 10 percent we've just seen in the UK. So is there is there a tipping point? Is that People taking extremes and saying, oh, look, this happens, you get inflation. If you expand the money supply threefold, you'll get inflation. Well, no surprise there. But 10%, <laughs> 20%, 50%? I mean, is the, do we know a point at which you, you're going to cre- create problems? I know there's many other factors, like, for example, is the virus going on and is demand subdued? But in normal times, have we got an idea of what that percentage might be? No, well, we don't because we the, the the pressure has always been in the opposite direction to reduce the amount of money that governments create and let it be created by the private banking sector. So in terms of having an actual experiment to see what you know what actually happens, you know, forget the theory. What's the empirical data show us? We haven't seen mm-hmm. anything like that scale of increase in the money supply at any stage in a Western nation uh, I mean, with with a fully functioning uh, production system ever. We've only we've only mm-hmm. seen these things. When you have something like the Weimar Republic, when there's you know, after the First World War, which I think may have destroyed a few machines here and there, um, the, uh, the 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 Zimbabwe experience, where there, were, there was a wholesale uh, destruction of the farming sector by uh, what was portrayed as being um, well, I don't know the Zimbabwe system well enough to be strong on this, but uh, Mugabe pretending he was making things better for black farmers by dispossessing white farmers. And the effect of destroying, uh, we're, we're, what, down. Yeah. we're destroying yeah. the productive capacity of the farming sector, and then printing to compensate. It's only in extreme areas where there's been destruction of physical resource capability uh, in some manner that we've seen money uh, runaway money creation and then runaway rates of inflation. Um, so, in terms of a you know a, a country, of a, no no country of the scale of you know the UK, America. Outside of being defeated in a war, has had a period of hyperinflation, and yet every time any change in money suppliers talked about, people, oh, that's won't that cause inflation? So, is right now? I'd imagine. I mean, we know the money supply is increasing. We know that most of that is going on the on the balance sheets of the central banks. I'm sort of assuming uh, commercial banks aren't creating a great deal of money right now because there's not a great deal of demand for loans, and what what loan demand there is is getting backed up by governments, which will yeah. be through money which has been created through through central banks. Okay. So it's sort of like one compensating for another almost. And, yeah, and in fact, is this, is this a better situation to be in? That's that's how I saw it all the way through because, uh, first of all, you're not going to have people going up and willingly borrowing money uh, when you had mm. a collapse in demand as something like caused by the coronavirus. Secondly, there is a way you can just, you can re- you can destroy the money supply, um, and that is by people repaying loans. Uh, or by loans mm. going bad and money having been written off. And that was bound to happen with something like the coronavirus because, you know, quite, quite a substantial proportion of the population, maybe 30%, suddenly has no income. So with no income, 
uh, they can't service the debts. They're going to go into into bad bad debts. Those that do have cash uh, are likely to be paying their their loans down. Uh, and if they do that, that reduces the money supply. So all these factors mm-hmm. from the impact of the coronavirus on the on the credit money system were likely to mean either a decline in the actual amount of money or an increase in bad loans, which then have to be written off at some point, uh, or a slowdown in how fast people spend because they start hoarding or they're not buying yeah. the usual stuff so their actual rate of turnover drops. Uh, and all that means, well, you've got to compensate. If, if, even if it's just a case of the velocity of money slowing down, uh, you'd need, if, if that happens, you need to compensate by an injection of money at the same time. And that's what's happened yeah. here. So one, one is compensated for the other. Um, and how we come out of the other side is the question was, so look at that in, in just a second, because mm. we, you know, all of those things which have gone bad could suddenly turn good. So is that going to create a, uh, not a, from a my looking at the UK coronavirus numbers, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, come off it. We had one of the lowest days ever a few days ago, but you know, there's always a chance to. Uh, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing again, isn't it? So we'll, we'll have another wave later on. But I mean, the, the central banks almost didn't have a choice, did they? If we to to bail out the the the, the finance sector, because if 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 bank loans go bad. Uh, then you are going to get that, as you say, a reduction in the in the money supply. So forget about you know keeping those banks alive, and the question about you know here they go again, just helping out their mates. But if they don't, then you would get a, a reduction in the in the money supply, and with, that would go the other way to inflation. We'd have uh, massive deflation if we had a lot. Which of Which is what I think on. we're going to see anyway. I mean, because uh, mm. you you have such a huge uh, level of private debt outstanding now anyway. This, if this grown, we, we, there's no reason the coronavirus crisis had to coincide with the aftermath of the financial crisis, but it did. And in that situation, let's, let's say we had the coronavirus back in the days of Maggie Thatcher, we would have had a private debt level in the UK of 55% of GDP. Instead, it happens you know, now, we have a debt level of about 175% of GDP, you know, more than three times as much debt per head um, and and certainly in terms of America, more than three times the debt ratio they had back at the time of the Spanish flu. So when you have that hitting, uh, you suddenly have a total collapse in cash flow as well. And then uh, whether during the while the virus is striking or afterwards, people are going to be trying to drag customers in through their front doors when they can. Uh, they'll drop their prices, and when they drop their prices simultaneously, you get a fall on the price level with no increase in the actual number of, of customers coming through the door. You end up getting GDP falling faster than the red rates of debts are paid off and you have the experience of the Great Depression where the private debt ratio rises no. even though private debt is being reduced. So, yeah, they, it was absolutely essential that the banks do, central banks do much what they're doing you know, during the crisis, which is pumping that money in to compensate for the decline in the turnover of money and the decline in the creation of money by the private uh, credit system. And will they ever pull it back, do you think? Or will it... Uh, I mean, and, and also, if you decided that you wanted to, once you've expanded the money supply, how actually do you, you pull it back? If you issued bonds and the central bank bought them, I guess presumably the idea is, which is what we saw with with QE late last year, they, uh, they they've sold them on the open market, and then they try and and, and reduce their their liabilities. They're, okay, we bought these now; you can buy them back, and that's how they try and reduce their balance sheet. So that's their way of reining in the the money supply. But as we saw last year, that just doesn't work. And if we look at the money supply since two thousand and eight, I mean, it's, it's never it's never gone down to how it was before two thousand and eight. So we do do we just accept that it's 
it's higher now uh, and it's going to it's going to stay you know we we have these almost like these quantum leaps during a crisis which we certainly had in america i mean you had uh, excess reserves in america going from the order of zero to the order of two trillion in a matter of three or four months under bernanke mm. and and the, the same uh, effective dynamic is playing out this time around over and even faster uh, across almost all central banks they're pumping in money through the treasury's need to provide people with with some cash during the lockdown period, uh, without which the private system would collapse. Uh, it's managed to keep the private sector going, but they can't then take the money back out again on the other side. It, it'll, be, it'll be stuck on the books. And there's no great problem with that. It's, it's not something to worry about. It's, it's changing the dynamic of how they might be able to control their target interest rate. And that's something they got wrong uh, last time when they tried to do quantitative tightening. Uh, over the last uh, about one and a half, two years ago. But, you know, you, you have to have to live with it. You've created, you've injected the money in. You can't take it out without effectively bringing the system crashing down again. So, interestingly, if you look at uh, various central banks and how their balance sheets increased after the, the financial crisis in 2008, one country that was late to the party was Japan. I mean, their balance sheet uh, didn't increase after the 2008 crisis. Uh, it took a good five years after that before the central bank uh, started to uh, to increase the money supply. So did that add to Japan's woes, do you think? No, because Japan had its crisis back in 1990. And uh, what, what really is incredibly frustrating about being an, a non-orthodox person looking at how the orthodoxy uh, mismanages the money supply is that everything that happened in 2008, the dress rehearsal for that was in 1990 in Japan. Mm. A massively overvalued stock market driven by the period the Japanese literally referred to as the bubble economy period between 1980 and 1990, a housing bubble which led to the Imperial Palace in Tokyo, which I think you can run around the Imperial Palace in about like as a decent jogger in less than an hour. So something with the circumference, you can, you know, no more than a 10 kilometre circumference was worth more than California. That may be a qualitative judgment, but, you know, nonetheless, it was a, uh, it was a huge overvaluation of, of, uh, of, of Japanese real estate. Uh, and then it all comes crashing down. It, it literally burst on 31st of December 1989, because that's the day that the Nikkei reached its peak of about 39,000 points. It's been all downhill since then. Ever since then, the government's been pumping in money through QE, um, doing fiscal stimulus, but not enough, always turning it off just when they think things are going to recover and you go back into private sector deleveraging again. Uh, so Japan's already been through it, and 2008 for them was no great... Um, N- nothing like the scale of what it was for the other countries just, around the world. Yeah, okay. Just by well, yeah, and on that scale thing, then. So I mean, if you, which the point I was sort of like alluding to earlier, if you've got a mm. central bank that's got a low balance sheet that suddenly hits a crisis like this, uh, like Australia, for example, the RBA balance sheet has more or less doubled uh, this year. Uh, the UK it's gone up by a third because there was a because uh, the the balance sheet was so much higher. Mm. Does that create more of a shock? Not really. I mean, again, if you take a look at what happened with Bernanke back in uh, 2008, um, he made the argument in his book, uh, Essays on the Great Depression, which is basically his uh, job application for becoming uh, Federal Reserve Chairman. Uh, He went through the the stats of the 1930s crisis, blaming the crisis on the Federal Reserve not creating enough reserves during the crisis or before the crisis. Uh, See, he said the the Great Depression was caused by the Federal Reserve not creating enough money. Uh, Then the crisis comes along and bang, what does he do? He increases excess reserves from about zero to about two trillion. 
uh, over a matter of months. And what happens? Well, it stopped, a, it stopped a total meltdown of the system, but it didn't produce anything like the stimulus that he thought it would because he was working in terms of the money multiplier. If you inject mm. in $2 trillion, you should curse $20 trillion worth of additional demand in terms of additional loans. Nonsense, because banks don't use, can't lend using reserves in the first place. Um, it had an effect in terms of assuring up the balance sheets of the private banks, um, but it did bugger all to stimulate lending because it has no relationship to lending in the first place. So how do we manage that relationship then between uh, central banks creating money and uh, and 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 how do they, so two questions here how how do we relate that to commercial banks creating money do we should we put constraints on commercial banks and secondly um you know if if the central banks are creating money to fund governments then that really is breaking what is supposed to be the independence between those two parties i mean really the central bank is now working for the treasury isn't it it always is. This is, again, the, the myth of the idea of an independent central bank. The only reason for that was that they – or two reasons for that. One is that the, the, the mainstream economic theory said the most important thing to achieve was the equilibrium interest rate, which they call the NARA, the not accelerating inflation rate of unemployment, uh, which yeah. also is based on the idea of which, a natural rate of interest. All these yeah, things that no don't ex- managed to pin down. They no, always seem it, to be it doesn't exist. It. It's another textbook, textbook myth. Uh, but the idea was that if they said that, then the economy will be absolutely, absolutely stable. All, all the DSGE models that they, uh, the, the dynamic stochastic general equilibrium models that they supposedly use to manage the economy on, um, have a tendency towards equilibrium. And the, the, what's called the Taylor rule relates the level of inflation to the level of interest rates. And uh, and it's all supposed to work nice and smoothly, and it's completely irrelevant to the real world. But that's that's what they think they can target. They wanted independence because of their economic models. Politicians, on the other hand, um, and Paul Keating was a classic example of this, did not like the fact that uh, when they controlled interest rates, if they put rates up, they copped you know shit during the next electoral cycle. So the whole idea is, yeah, hand it over to the central bank and get it off our hands because that way it's the bureaucrats who do the adjustment of interest rates, not us, and we don't cop um, the political opprobrium from putting up rates during a boom. So the independence of the central bank is, is effectively, it's a legal, a legal fiction because ultimately the central bank is owned by the treasury. Yeah. And that's where the, where the profits of the central bank go back to the treasury. So the and the other question related to the to the role of commercial banks. And of course, the and so this is where you get into uh, monetary theory, where central banks say, well, we do control the money supply created through central through commercial banks because we control the interest rates, which will determine how many loans are issued and therefore the amount of money that's issued. Which is uh, garbage. They, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, is there, is there even a shred of, uh, no, of proof that sh- that actually happens? Barely a shred of evidence. There'd be, t- there'd be some association, but fairly minor. I mean, my way of thinking about this I mean, it comes back for all the work I've done in designing the Minsky software. And that is I now think about uh, monetary flows and, and capitalism in general in terms of assets, liabilities and equity. And if you and this is where the, the where I completely 100% agree with the basic insight of modern monetary theory. If, if you have uh, if you mentioned an economy which has a, a, a government and the government has uh, taxation revenue exceeding its spending, then that means it's getting an increase in its assets are rising more than its liabilities, so its equity rises. 
you look at the rest of the economy because one group's asset, one entity's asset is another entity's liabilities, then if the government is trying to achieve a positive equity in total, so its, its assets exceed its liabilities, by definition, non-government is a negative equity to precisely the same amount. So if you have a bank, if you have a government trying to achieve positive equity, it will it causes the private sector, the, the non-government sector, mm. to be in negative equity to precisely the same level. Uh, and if you're in negative equity, even though companies can function in negative equity because the turnover of the, the, the profit they're making out of their turnover of money can service the debts they have, um, it's an, it's a negative, it's a, it's a uncomfortable position for anybody to do their books and find, oh my God, I'm in negative equity. So what do you do? You go and borrow money from banks, gamble on asset yeah. prices, drive up the yeah. asset price, pretend that what you've got your your assets include the price of the last share times the entire stock of outstanding shares or the shares you own, which is a fictional calculation because if you tried to actually realise that price and everybody did it at the same time, the price would collapse. I I think the government trying to run a surplus actually drives the private sector into the hands of the private banks and causes them to have speculative lending, speculative borrowing, a, a, a bubble like we saw in 1990 to 2000, like we also saw in 1920 to 1930. And everything appears fine, but what you've got is an increasing level of private debt and then a crisis and bang, you have a crunch like 2008. Right, but doesn't that work the other way as well in that right now uh, those people who are in a in a comfortable position can buy equities uh, they've got uh, so we've you know we've got this crazy situation and we've talked about it in a recent podcast where we've got uh, the the share market reaching all-time highs despite this crisis because everybody knows interest rates are going to be low for the next three years it's basically been signaled by the by the fed so if you've got money buy equities because because uh, you know and borrow money to buy those equities because you know it's not going to cost you a lot to uh, to pay back on interest and you're expecting the price to be driven up by uh, by financial institutions who are selling all their bonds to the mm. government to the central bank and they've then got cash they've got to convert into income earning assets, so they're going to buy shares. So yeah, it's yeah. The, it's the it's the greenspans put on steroids, and and that's one reason that you simply you know you're not one of one of the things in the market that I actually agree with is don't bet against the Fed. I bet the Fed's yeah. going to make a mistake is another one I'd go for too. But when the Fed has decided to buy uh, as, as many bonds as they can get to inject money into the either the financial sector if they do it or into the um, and Main Street economy, if the Treasury does it, you know there's going to be a boost to the value of financial assets. And Jerome Powell says with a straight face that he doesn't believe that uh, there is an asset bubble being created by uh, this continuance of, uh, of low interest rates. He almost makes it sound like he, he believes it himself rather than he's just reading it from a script. So how do you stop that happening? And and is that one of the one of the byproducts of uh, of all of this? Because if you expect, I mean, and what I guess the question before that, what is the relationship between uh, an expanded money supply and interest rates? Could you be, for example, expanding the the uh, if if we if we accepted the fact that money supply monetary theory does nothing, uh, then the argument about increasing the interest rates to try and reduce um, debts from commercial banks goes out the window. So if most of the money is being created by central banks, what is the role of interest rates in that mix? Well, interest rates 
again, in mainstream theory, a way of seeing a way of balancing supply against demand. And the idea of an independent demand schedule and supply schedule, and you set the price. If you put the price up, you're going to reduce demand and increase supply, et cetera, et cetera. That's, that's the, the lens through which conventional economists see the role of the interest rate. Uh, but mm. the, one of the whole points of the uh, endogenous money uh, argument is that there is no independent demand and supply of money. They, and there's no production function for money either. It's something which mm. banks can create simply by you know, agreeing to create the money with a borrower. Uh, they have a tiny cost of production, but it's, it's almost unrelated to the interest rate. So you, And also, as, as Keynes argued back in the 1930s, uh, what really drives investment and speculation is not the cost of money in terms of discounting and expected future value of of cash flows. It's speculation about the future, about an uncertain future. And if you have people believing uh, that that there's a boom going on, a classic uh, euphoric uh, expectations period, as Minsky described it, then you simply won't stop that by putting up interest rates until you drive them through the roof. And my favourite example of that goes back to Australia and a a, a Ponzi schema there you might remember called Christopher Scase. Remember him at all? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I Christ- do. Yeah. Christopher Scase, his main... Now living fund- in Spain, I think, isn't he? Hi, pardon? Oh, is he alive? Is he still alive? I'm not sure uh, he was No, Spain, no, he's, 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 obse- he's obeying the two-metre rule. He's two metres below you and me. Goodness. <laughs> 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 Indeed. Uh, but he, he was, uh, it's good, the Adler family, Rodney Adler and Larry Adler, mm. I've got the firm, they, they ran. They were his yeah. main source of funds. And he was caught up in a whole range of, you know, uh, uh, five-star hotel speculative developments around the country. And they, would, they, they used to alternate who actually saw him when he came in asking for a loan because he always had to roll over his debts. He was a Ponzi schemer. He was losing money. His, the amount of money he'd borrowed to buy the assets that he had was far, far exceeded the actual cash flow from the sort of things that, from the assets themselves. So he had to always get rolled over and he managed to sell an asset. And they would play a game where they alternate who actually saw him when he came into the, uh, the, the company to apply for a loan and put it up by 1% every time waiting until Christopher Scase would say no. Now, this is back at the stage when interest rates were at the, around, around about 12 to 14%, I think. They got as high as 25. He never, yeah. ever even discussed it. He simply said yes. He just needed the money. The reason was he was losing money hand over fist uh, from the assets he'd purchased because the cash flow wasn't enough to service the debt, the debt servicing. And if he didn't have the cash coming in, he couldn't continue holding the assets. So he finally went bankrupt after he made a $3 billion US dollar offer to buy MGM, was turned down by the board and went bankrupt the next week because he couldn't pay a $12 million loan instalment. Now, you can't stop somebody with that rapacious demand for money by putting up the rate and fine-tuning things. It's the expectations of future gain that's driving them and the desperate situation they were in at the time that means they have to continue borrowing that money. So interest rates do not control the demand for money unless you wake them up like Vokler did when you go from, you know, 10% to 20% and you start bankrupting ordinary businesses and then the economy goes into a serious recession. Right. So we're getting a bit off track maybe, but I'm just curious as to what the role of interest rates is then. Um, in today's climate, apart from the fact that uh, if if you are uh, issuing bonds and uh, and buying them, and you expect to, you know, that the, the government is going to have to um, 
pay at some point for them. The the interest rate has to be paid uh, on those on those bonds. Then the the lower the interest rate, the better. Uh, that that's for that's for bonds that aren't bought by central banks but are there on the uh, on the open market. Uh, then you know they've got a vested interest in in interest rates being low. But what what else is determining if if it's if it's not monetary theory that's that's determining interest rates? It seems like at the moment it's only being determined by one thing, which is by uh, the operations of the uh, monetary committee buying and selling them to try and control the yields. And what's the point of that? Yeah, well, in conventional economic theory sees it as. Uh, controlling your willingness to consume now versus consume later, or mm. or to um, to uh, you know, spend now rather than spend in the future. Right, but you and said that's not the case. That, it's that not the happen. case. No, it, it's it's yeah. just it's a textbook model which doesn't work um, yeah. because the main thing determining people's willingness to borrow money is not the cost of money; it's their expectations of gain from having that money, whether it's on a speculative. You know, buying, buying, and selling shares, and expecting. So why not money. just fix it then? What's the point of it? Why yeah, not? Just fix yeah, yeah, and then, and and that was Keynes's argument. I think was the the best rate of interest is a very low one, uh, because mm. what it's really doing is that is is partially determining how much of the income of the economy goes to the financial sector, versus how much yeah. goes to the workers and how much goes to capitalists. And in common with Keynes, I'd like to see that be as small as possible. So. Uh, if we look at um, back on the idea of you know what's a what's a good money supply and uh, and how much it increases, China of course has been creating uh, a lot of money for a long time. If you look at the M two money supply in China, you know M two money basically can be you know not tied up, can be easily used. Figures from the St Louis Fed. Uh, that uh, resource that we both like to use. In 2000, both the US and China's currencies amounted to about five trillion US dollars. By 2018, the US had risen to 15 trillion, but China was well, worth well over 35 trillion without inflation and, of course, a very rapidly growing economy. Coincidence? Or do you think they were using that money to invest to grow their economy? Could that I- possibly be the case? Yeah, I think it is the case. I mean, uh, because China hasn't got any of the the the, the, the deficit hawk problem that America has. Uh, you, you know, the government has to pay back any debt it takes out in the future, yada, yada, yada. And they're effectively employing the wisdom of modern monetary theory, whether they're doing consciously or not, it's another story. But massive money uh, creation by the government, meaning that the government is in deficit, but the government can cope with being in deficit. Therefore, the private sector's in massive surplus. There's lots of cash in the economy. The government deficit creates cash that the private sector can spend. And you get a free spending, free investing uh, a private sector, which will grow much more rapidly than one which is constrained by the government being assessed for running a surplus. Mm. So this really is, I mean, it's it's modern monetary theory being shown to be operating in practice and and working. The, the, the big question is, at what level, isn't it? Is the, what is the tipping point? No one seems, that's where we started this conversation. No one really seems to know the answer. How much money can you, what do you need to take out of the, the way we operate now do we fix interest rates? Do we stop commercial banks uh, lending out money, for example? Uh, and and what's the tipping point? At what point do we say, well, okay, you need to pull back now on the on the money creation? And how do you pull it back as well? Is the other question. Mm. Well, again, I think you you want to be you, your general principle is your government should be running a deficit because the deficit creates a private sector surplus, identical surplus to the deficit yeah. in the government sector. That then means the private sector, the non-government sector can be in net positive equity 
and net positive equity, they're not likely to get involved in borrowing binges for the sake of speculation alone. There's plenty of money being created which they can spend on goods and services. Um, so you want to have uh, an economy with a substantial government deficit uh, which provides the, the cash for the private sector to spend. You don't want it to the stage where there's demand leaks over into massive imports of, of foreign goods, so you start destroying your balance of your balance of payments, balance of trade, uh, and you don't want it to you know, have an economy which is already at you know one percent, one and a half percent employment, uh, going to below that level where you start getting wage demands. Uh, which which won't be constrained and you start getting increases in raw materials prices and they will give you inflation. But we are so far from that point, you know, it's, mm. uh, talk about fighting the last war, Any, anybody fighting the war against inflation in the West is fighting a war of, of two generations ago, not one. But how do you get, if you create that money, how do you get it into the into the right hands? Presumably it has to be through banks issuing loans. I mean, the most sensible way no. would be to say, well, it, no. No, well, well. How do you, without picking a side, how do you, how do you get it into the right hand? It could be a very low interest loan. You could say, no, well, okay, it, it's a zero interest loan. But how do you get the money out into, uh, into the community where it's going to be productive without gov- the government? Th- okay, but they've got to pick sides. Then they've got to, they've got to pick industries. They've got fin- to pick winners. Finance, finance students, pay students to go to university, pay them to, to go to school. Uh, medical, pay medical staff to run hospitals, staff them sufficiently to cover uh, all your needs and maybe a bit of room for these strange, unpredictable things called pandemics. It's government spending mm. on large-scale infrastructure and, and, and fundamental services, uh, which is of the order of 30% of, to 50% of GDP for most countries around the world. Anyway, Do it without yeah. being obsessed about running. Uh, don't obsess about a surplus. Obsess about the private sector surplus. And that means creating sufficient money by running your own deficit. We know, of course, that uh, within the next few months, all of this is going to change, isn't it? That uh, that the focus is going to be on holding back that spending, trying to reduce the uh, the government debt, reduce the, the balance sheet in central banks. We know interest rates are going to be low in Australia where property prices might. I mean, forecasters are saying that prices are going to fall just 10% in Australia for housing. Uh, and then pick up the middle of next year. We know in the middle of next year, everyone's going to be going, you beaut, interest rates are low and they're going to stay low for the next few years. We're going to get back to uh, trash bubbles. Commercial banks are going to start issuing a, a, lot, a lot of money again at the same time that we're seeing governments trying to pull it back. We're going to be back to square one, aren't we? Uh, I've got a feeling we won't be because um, I don't think we're any, anywhere near out of the coronavirus wave as yet. Australia may well be in New Zealand is and uh, out, Southeast Asia is. But Europe, America, Latin America, um, the subcontinent, um, I, I think we're going to be caught up in the aftermath of this crisis for another two or three years. And then God knows what's coming next down, down the pack uh, in terms of global warming hitting our productive and finan- productive system and financial system. So, so this uh, is going to be a game changer the way we see our, our economies operate then. I, this yeah, is like I, almost, but yeah. th- this idea of money creation through, through central banks and governments is going to become the norm. I think so. And again, because you can't make a profit out of having to reduce the size of the economy as drastically as we'll need to to cope with global warming as it comes our way. Uh, you know, it's some of the stuff we're seeing about the temperatures in Siberia being 20 Celsius degrees mm. above average, horrific things like that. We may be seeing the beginning of climate breakdown. And when that happens, uh, you know, just like we didn't win the Second World War by uh, a private for private finance business venture against the Germans and the Japanese, 
this will be government financing and this in some ways has been a dry run as to how easily the government can create the money for its own needs. Right. Maybe we'll be grateful for it at some point. We'll say, well, thank God it changed our thinking uh, just in time. I hope so. Good to talk, Steve. Catch you again soon. Thank you. Okay. And yeah, we uh, we still hear commentators talking about the extra debt with Boris Johnson now taking this Rooseveltian approach to the economy, an interventionist approach where vast quantities of government money is being injected into the economy. You still get commentators asking where will that money come from and how is it going to be paid back, assuming that the only way is through higher taxes. So the debate hasn't moved that far forward, has it really? In fact, the Institute of Fiscal Studies on their website right now is debating the need for a wealth tax. Now, I tell you, you know the world has turned upside down when the Institute of Fiscal Studies is even discussing the idea of getting the rich to pay more taxes. But they're doing it in the context of having to repay debt, not accepting that that debt can just be, in effect, ignored, or perhaps even better, not called debt in the first place. And that's it for this week on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keane. I'm Phil Dobby. We're back again next week with another one. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.